Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Charles Harry, who is the Director of Operations at the Maryland Global Initiative in Cybersecurity, an Associate Research Professor in the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, and a Senior Research Associate at Center for International Security Studies at Maryland. He is also part of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Cyber Advisory Panel. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you very much. I want to start with uh, one of your um, articles, uh, perhaps from a blog, uh, Integrating Human and Technical Networks in Organizational Risk Assessments, uh, in which you say the U.S. government's recent efforts to ban the introduction of a specific foreign IT vendor's equipment in government networks is emblematic of the growing concern among organizational leaders pushed by global supply chains, highlighting the broad interdependencies between technical and human systems. And you ask, uh, how do we understand and measure the risk of uh, risk uh, measure the risk surface of human systems for our organizations? You want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, no, we'd be happy to. So, uh, one of the the real challenges uh, in the field of cybersecurity is less about uh, in, very narrowly these technical problems. You know, don't get me wrong; they they are a challenge, and we have a lot of really smart people working on those issues. But one of the areas that really has perplexed a lot of policymakers and organizational leaders, you know, is this notion of complexity in their organization. Uh, so typically, when we talk about vulnerabilities in systems, we're talking about a single device. Um, you know, maybe it's a Windows box, maybe it's Linux, and there are vulnerabilities, and those vulnerabilities can be exploited. And and so that's great. And we tend to focus on kind of that single instance. But the the problem is, is that when you look at how technology is actually leveraged in organizations and more broadly in an entire society. It's not just one device; it's millions of devices hmm. uh, that are all internet, you know, networked together. Uh, and then there are humans that uh, use those uh, particular devices, and those devices themselves 
support human processes like manufacturing tires or an automobile or uh, operating a customer service line. And so this interface between technology and human processes is really the crux of the cyber problem. Hmm. And it's this broader complexity and how you measure it uh, and measure potential risk that is absolutely critical. And and we see that uh, both in the private sector and the public sector, that there really has been a growing awareness over the, say, the last 10 years of the importance of risk-based approaches to cybersecurity. Yeah. Yeah. So just like the, you know, the, the robotics automated systems, uh, it, you know, humans tend to be, as you know, the, the weak link in the right. process. And, you know, we can, we can get the world's greatest technology, uh, highly automated, uh, highly specialized. Uh, but if it requires a human input in the process, that becomes the weakest link, right? Correct. Right. And it, it becomes really difficult for the defender to understand kind of where the seams are in their defense. So, um, you know, it, it could be that you are pretty well defended in part of your network, but either exploit a human weakness um, that is tied to a particular organizational process uh, that maybe you didn't account for. And that could potentially expose, you know, $100 million worth of risk to an organization. Or if you're a society and, and you have the, uh, a potential disruption to a key service or organization, it could lead to large-scale failures in a, an entire critical infrastructure sector. And so I think uh, that's the real challenge that, uh, you know, beyond looking at just a, a specific business that policymakers have, which is how do I begin to understand the enormity of the problem? Uh, in an entire critical infrastructure sector when you have millions upon millions of devices that work together with humans to do important things. How, how do I assess that? How do I measure it? How do I categorize uh, the range of effects? How do I measure severity? These are all fundamental questions that are not well uh, settled right now in the industry. Yeah. And frankly, is really the role of academics right now to try to uh, explore that space. So what's the trend here, Charlie? Um, you, you know, artificial intelligence is, is improving uh, quite dramatically. Um, is the trend toward more autonomous information technology infrastructure essentially remove the human content in it or, or it's not that easy? Well, so is certainly uh, automation and advanced analytics uh, and, and really the promise that AI brings is, you know, greater efficiency in, in, a, in a number of different systems, whether it's advanced manufacturing or it's in something like a smart city. I think the clear trend in the 21st century is greater adoption of technology, greater adoption of advanced analytics. That's clearly where we're heading. Um, you know, new standards like 5G are, are going to help enable that. Uh, the, the challenge, I think, for uh, leaders, uh, both in the public and private sector, is how do you manage the security concerns, but you know, really take advantage of all the beneficial aspects that artificial intelligence and, and you know, the smart infrastructure of the 21st century uh, really provides. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really like the idea. Uh, you call it the risk surface of human systems. So it is really the interface of technology and, and human systems. That's where most of the problems 
excess, right? Correct. And and that's exactly where my research focuses in on is how do you how do you map that surface? How do you measure it? How do you categorize certain sub-elements to it? And it's really uh, what what begins to emerge is the combination of kind of this intersection between devices themselves and with their you know humans and human processes. But it's part of a larger what we call you know complex systems framework where you get these kind of individual movements that are happening and individual things that occur at the system level. But then you get these emergent phenomenon that can uh, that can come out of such a complex system that create real problems. And the challenge for humans is, you know, can we begin to understand what those emergent effects are? Uh, and if we do, then we can start to devise uh, better defensive uh, approaches to to try to get that under control. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if this is the right way to think about it, Charlie. You know. Um, because the slope of the technology is quite quite high, uh, so 5G is coming, um, you know, better artificial intelligence analytics is coming. This would require organizations to continuously fine-tune, change, rebuild their IT systems too, right? So uh, as you sort of uh, flip uh, legacy systems, uh, you're in- introducing a high level of risk, I would imagine. Absolutely. And, and the, the risk surface changes, right? So we, if you go from kind of a 20th century model of, you know, a client server setup with, a, you know, kind of uh, the, the older, you know, Oracle database, and you've got client machines that are interacting with it, and you now move to a more uh, modern approach where you've got cloud-based infrastructure, uh, where there's now, you know, an entire ecosystem of servers that are working together uh, to allow for things like streaming analytics uh, and doing that real-time uh, analysis, the the surface, the number of devices that you're using uh, increases. Therefore, the attack surface opens up mm-hmm. and the complexity of how they interact changes dramatically. And then when you think about how those are dispersed geographically, right. now they're sitting in data centers that might be halfway around the world. Uh, leveraging, you know, internet-based infrastructure. And so it opens up uh, yet more uh, um, attack venues and avenues of, of uh, potentially disrupting your business. So it, you know, the word of the day here is complexity, but, it, yeah. but that really is it. And I think it's a real challenge for the operations manager in the future. Right. Yeah, both systems and humans are distributed uh, geographically, right? So it uh, you know on the positive side it gives some uh, some redundancy, uh, but on the other hand it increases complexity and possibly uh, increases the risk. Correct, right, and okay. and that's I think the real challenge is that uh, I think conceptually you know business managers understand this they they live it every day. Uh, the the challenge is is how do you how do you actually compute it and try to address it in a in a, a fairly scientific way. And that could actually be really difficult, even for people who are well-resourced and, and who have the motivation to do so. Yeah, yeah. I want to go into another article that you have, how to prioritize strategic risks that affect critical infrastructure. Um, so you say many organizations are struggling with how to assess the broad set of risks stemming from cyber attacks against the nation's critical infrastructure. Uh, roughly 85% of the critical infrastructure in the U.S. is managed and operated by private organizations. 
And if ours is one of those, uh, basically, if, if yours is one of those firms, you have the primary responsibility for assessing specific vulnerabilities and managing cybersecurity risks to, to your own network. So it's, it's an entire sort of interaction with a plethora of privately managed uh, systems uh, that makes it extremely complex, I would imagine. Yeah, no, I think that that's exactly right. This really stems, this problem really stems, uh, or I, I should say is, is well articulated in the 2018 U.S. cyber strategy, where they explicitly call out this idea of national risk. How do you, how do you estimate risk in critical systems? Uh, and, and so the, the article that, that you're citing really tries to highlight that, you know, while there's broad agreement uh, across industry and across uh, the public sector, that strategic cyber risk is a issue and that risk in critical systems is certainly a issue. How to actually do so, how to actually try to understand that in a meaningful way is a gap. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security has specifically cited this as an area uh, that needs additional work. And, and so the ability to understand how individual private organizations, you noted the 85% of uh, critical infrastructure in the United States is managed by the private sector. Uh, uh, and so how do all those various individual organizations work together to provision a service? So for instance, you know, you, you can think of something like airlines and, and air transport in the United States. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of airports all around the United States. Uh, some are extremely large, some are pretty small, but they're all part of the air transportation network. And when you look at the number of individually uh, run um, airlines in conjunction with some oversight, uh, depends on the airfield, um, by you know state and local government um, and the private operators. So one way we can think about this, uh, this issue of complexity and strategic risk is to look at something like the air transportation sector. So the air transportation sector in the United States consists of hundred, if not thousands of airports. Uh, those airports are geographically distributed. They're run by different organizations. There's interactions with uh, the federal government, state and local governments. Uh, and all of those operators uh, have their own processes which are tied to their own IT systems. And so when you think about how aircraft take off from airports and land at other airports, they're supported by this complete orchestra uh, of IT systems that have to work together. Right. And so if uh, you know the communications tower network goes down at Los Angeles airport, you may not have the ability to take off or land at that airport. And so um, what could start off as, let's say, uh, a router going down in a key part of the network could disrupt a human process that human process then leads to the inability for planes to take off or land, mm. which then affects and cascades through the entire air transportation system, right? It leads to additional delays. It reduces flight capacity out of, uh, on, out of you know, particular regions in the U.S. And so uh, it's important when you think about strategic risk from cyber that you understand that the, while the attacks occur on specific devices, servers, mm -hmm. laptops, routers, they can quickly cascade through these human processes. And that's the real challenge of measuring strategic risk. Yeah, so 
so the issue, um, if if I were to diagnose this, Charlie, uh, so there is no standardization. Uh, 85% of the critical infrastructure is managed by uh, different private companies. And clearly a private company does not have infinite resources to to assure that there are no there are no risks, but it has to essentially communicate with variety of other infrastructures built and managed by other companies, right? So, is it is it a sort of a lack of standardization, or you know, uh, how would you, if you were to start from uh, start with a blank sheet of paper, how would you uh, lessen this risk? Yeah, you know, this is a this is a huge challenge. And, and a lot of people in the field, uh, they they both understand the enormity of the challenge and, and are trying to take some proactive, you know, steps to address it. So uh, I, I, you know, several years back, the Obama administration, um, you know, uh, authored an executive order that eventually led to the NIST uh, cybersecurity framework, which was, in essence, a way to try to standardize or create um, some general generalizable principles and best practices in how to manage um, uh, cybersecurity, the cybersecurity problem in critical infrastructure. Hmm. That process was uh, the identification of risk and risk management. And um, what you find in that framework are some really good general principles. Uh, however, when you delve into the framework, and this is not really a criticism of the framework, it's not really what it was meant for, but there are limits. They, they never actually tell you how to compute risk. And they kind of leave that to um, the specific uh, operator. And that, and that becomes a problem when you want to try to compare risk uh, across organizations. Right, right. Yeah, it becomes a resource problem uh, too. So if you don't have any quantification, uh, there is no prioritization. And hence, you might be dealing with things that might be marginally important, but you may be leaving out uh, much, much bigger things, right? If you that, don't really have a quantification of risk. That, that's absolutely right. And, and so it becomes a real challenge for a lot of the uh, federal agencies who are concerned about these things. So DHS and CISA, uh, the uh, Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, you know, they're deeply concerned about uh, strategic risk. And they have these concepts called, you know, national critical functions. And, uh, you know, they're trying to quantify uh, so they can best allocate scarce federal resources to maybe, you know, assist uh, these operators in, in uh, uh, strengthening their systems. And what becomes interesting is this notion that you have private companies that make private decisions, right, uh, about whether to do certain things or not do certain things. And there could be public level consequences, right? Hmm. So if you choose not to patch that server, uh, you know, which leads to, let's say, a ransomware deployment that shuts down a critical system. And then now let's say you can't move natural gas from one part of your pipeline infrastructure to another, you could potentially lead to problems, you know, down, uh, down range and maybe impact power generation, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so that's the, real, that's the real challenge in this field is how do I start to link up what is you know, oftentimes you know, very myopic, very highly focused on the, on the single technical system, but take a systems engineering approach and look at these larger consequences. Right, yeah. And, and obviously, you know, from a private company perspective, the decisions that they make is sort of maximizing shareholder value 
and that gets into what kind of insurance they might be holding and how they may have externalized that risk, that public risk that they may not be ultimately responsible for. And so, so the question from a system perspective is, is there a part of risk out there that nobody is really accountable for managing and that risk, if it gets big enough, could could potentially have a huge impact on society. That that's absolutely right. I, I think a really good example of that is uh, not the NotPetya uh, ransomware attack of a couple years back, and one of the targets that it ended up hitting was uh, Maris Line, which is the largest container ship company in the world. Yeah. And Marisk, uh, you know, there were thousands of devices that were affected by NotPetya, but it was just a handful of servers uh, that ended up directly affecting their container management system uh, in several large ports, including the port of Rotterdam, uh, which is the largest container ship port uh, um, uh, in Europe. And so what that ended up leading to was seven to 14 days uh, where they couldn't move containers in and out of the yard, which means that a lot of the supply chains, especially in Central Europe, in Germany in particular, were highly disrupted. So now you've got, you know, car companies, you've got chemical companies, you've got other firms that are now, you know, seeing supply chain problems that creates larger societal impacts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I want to jump into another paper, Charlie. Uh, this is, uh, so it's entitled An Effect-Centric Approach to assessing the risks of cyber attacks against a digital instrumentation and control systems at nuclear power plants. Uh, but you say cyber attacks against the digital instrumentation control systems and nuclear power plants are of grave security concern. Um, so uh, I was in engineering uh, a long, <laughs> long time ago, Charlie, and I was part of the team that qualified the Kamenchi Peak nuclear power plant south of Fort Worth. Oh. Uh, in the late 80s. Um, yeah, in the, in the late 80s. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously technology has changed quite a bit uh, from the 80s. Uh, but uh, change in technology doesn't really help us, right, from a risk perspective. Uh, why, why don't you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so, the, so that paper in particular, we worked with a nuclear engineer uh, out of uh, Lawrence Livermore. Well, he's retired uh, from Lawrence Livermore, but uh, a, a really, really uh, well-informed uh, nuclear uh, power engineer who really helped us think through how um, uh, both kind of older systems and nuclear power plants and some of the newer digital systems that are being implemented, uh, you know, with trying to identify what some of the potential risks and, and what risks, frankly, don't exist in yeah. something like a nuclear power plant. What, what, in essence, we're trying to do with a lot of the research that we've been working on is to try to uh, tampen down on some of the hysteria. Uh, you know, oftentimes you read news articles and people say, well, we have to worry about cyber attacks, you know, blacking out the entire United States and it could be done by a 12-year-old, right? And it's, that's just not really feasible uh, be, yeah. for a lot of different reasons. And one of the things that people like to talk about are nuclear power plants and, and engineering nuclear meltdowns. And what people oftentimes don't realize is, you know, there's a lot of safety engineering that goes into these systems, as you might imagine. Yeah. Uh, and so what we were trying to do in that paper was to systematically go through and highlight that 
you know, where there really might be a risk, you know, and yet not a lot of benefit for actually making it digital. So we specifically focused on parts of that process where we said, well, you know, the, the actual, you know, efficiency benefit you gain from digitizing this component is really not all that great. And you're better hmm. off leaving it in either as an analog system or a manual process uh, hmm. to create, in essence, a fire break uh, so that you don't see these catastrophic effects. And the idea was to to really start to apply, you know, our approach to risk to create those trade-offs to say, you know, in some cases we might be better off with, a, you know, a manual system or an analog system as opposed to completely digitizing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you say, the nuclear power plants is probably uh, pretty well protected. They are, you know, reasonably highly autonomous systems with a lot of safety um, uh, and redundancy. Uh, you know, when we were designing that plant, we had to actually design the containment for aircraft hits and things like that. This is in the in the late 80s. And, you know, th- these things have very, very high uh, factors of safety, uh, and that's why it becomes quite expensive to build them. Um, but uh, I think the risk might be coming from more from a, a technology perspective, right? So, yes. you know, this goes back to our earlier discussion, which is as technology changes, as as um, operators and companies are forced to change uh, legacy systems into newly arriving technologies. That is where I think a lot of the risk is going to materialize. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. A, a good example might be autonomous vehicles. Uh, so in the, the vehicles themselves, um, you know, there's kind of a range uh, of, uh, I, I guess, quality code and, and hardening of code. And I'm le- but I'm less concerned about a broad-based hacking of devices over, let's say, uh, GSM infrastructure. And I think what's much more likely to occur uh, in an area of risk that maybe people don't think about is all the roadside infrastructure that will also be required for more autonomous driving. So if you imagine a world 20, 30 years from now where there is autonomous vehicles, it's not just about the cars. It's about all the smart traffic lights. It's about the, you know, the, the guardrails that are going to have sensors. And the cars, no doubt, will interact with some of that infrastructure. Uh, as part of a broad traffic management program. Uh, and, you know, we, we already see a lot of the protocols for that being developed. Um, yes. So in my mind, the real risk is not, you know, necessarily on the on the hard target, which is, you know, your your Tesla or, you know, whatever the, the new electric car is, you know, 30 years from now, uh, because they may have actually done a relatively good job of locking things down and, and being able to very quickly patch uh, vulnerabilities. But it might be all that municipally owned infrastructure, you know, that, you know, small town, you know, uh, uh, somewhere in the United States that doesn't have a lot of resources to constantly keep this infrastructure patched and yeah. updated. And, and, and I think that's where you're going to start seeing more risk uh, in an area of future technology. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to go into one of your recent articles. I think, I don't know if it came out or just recently came out, the challenge of assessing strategic cybersecurity risk in organizations and critical infrastructure. Um, I don't have it in front of me, Charlie, but I remember you have devised some sort of a risk index, right? Some quantification of how to how to measure risk. 
Yes. Uh, so we, we have a broad uh, framework of analysis that we've developed. And part of that is a way to measure severity of attack uh, and put it in this kind of complex system analysis that you know, we've been talking a lot about. And so the, the paper you referenced was uh, an article that explicitly tried to tie some of the policymaker goals with an approach to actually start breaking this problem down into more manageable chunks. And we, we have a, an approach and we've done some analysis on various sectors. Uh, we're working on a paper now for um, the US airline infrastructure uh, where we actually go through and we analyze uh, what would an attack on both airports versus airlines really mean to both national and regional infrastructure? How do you quantify it? And, and there were some really surprising results that come out of that analysis, um, specifically localized effects versus national effects. Um, mm -hmm. Some areas of the country are more prone uh, to disruption from the loss of a specific airport versus others. So what we, the, the analysis that we're able to, to do is because we've been able to come up with an index that allows us to quantify um, basically the weighted disruption uh, in these kind of complex systems. Yeah. And so if I remember correctly, uh, so, so you have, so if you think about the, the airline, um, U.S. Uh, airline system, uh, you have hubs, you have volume of people moving uh, between airports. And, and so you can sort of come up with a, a network uh, analysis, right? That basically says, if I take a node out in that network, uh, what would be the implication of that in the entire system? Something along those lines? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. So uh, what, we, what we're able to build are graph models, node edge models, uh, where we are in essence able to string together, in the case of airlines, airports with uh, uh, passenger volumes. Uh, and so we create, in essence, uh, a large graph structure. And then we're able to estimate, um, based on the position of the node in the, in the graph, what we call hmm. centrality, uh, coupled with kind of the weighted um, edge weights around it, so the volumes of people going in and out uh, of the airport, and we're able to derive basically a weighted um, uh, disruption value. And we, and we basically anchor it between zero and one, zero meaning no disruption, one being full disruption of, yeah. of the graph structure. So what we're trying to do is take a lot of different dimensions and distill it down to a single number um, that gives people at least a sense, uh, you know, to a way to think about, you know, percentage of weighted disruption. Uh, from an attack. And, and we're able to apply that, you know, in a regional context. So we can look at it by FEMA region, or we can look at it nationally. And then we do the same thing with air, uh, airlines, where now we're taking the capacity out of the market, uh, instead of taking down an airport. And that that's where we start finding some really interesting results when you compare the two. Yeah, so, um, for example, COVID-19 effects, you could analyze uh, what effect of that might be on the system as well, Correct. right? If you were to, it's, it's kind of a demand shock Correct. on the system. And so, so have you done that? Uh, so I actually did some back of the, uh, uh, back of the envelope math uh, yeah. for a, another presentation. And we looked at, uh, the, we just had some preliminary numbers on changes of, um, 
uh, U.S. air demand. And so, as you might imagine, COVID was really quite significant uh, in, in terms of if you want to if you want to call it a disruption. But we can apply the exact same analytic method to do so. Uh, and we were able to, you know, demonstrate a, a, a very, very large effect, uh, you know, from February to March, March to April and April to May. Um, you know, I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me, uh, but I want to say it was on the order of as we move from uh, March into April, uh, the weighted effect uh, that we saw, let's say, at like LAX was roughly like a 0.35, 0.4. So um, hmm. and, and so there's some nuance in how to kind of interpret that number. Uh, but it, because the airport was still functioning, uh, even though 80 percent of the traffic volume was down, doesn't mean that it was completely disrupted because the, the network itself is still intact. Uh, but to your point, it's a demand shock. Uh, and so, you know, that it, it, it is still very consequential. Uh, but the way that we weight our, our index shows that it was highly consequential, but it does not mean the entire network falls apart. And there's a difference between that and say, let's say a cyber event where you actually shut down the, the actual ability for the airport to function. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a design question, ultimately. So, you know, one could argue that uh, it's a trade-off between, let's say, efficiency slash cost uh, against redundancy um, slash security in some ways, right? So I could design a system with a single hub (laughs) at the center of the country, and uh, I might actually garner a lot of efficiency by doing that. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, I could have all, you know, sort of small local airports, um, you know, moving back and forth between themselves. So I have a very high redundancy in the system that there, there, there cannot be any major disruption, um, even if you take a few nodes out. And so, so you know, we, we obviously have the status quo, but as we look forward from a design perspective, what what would you say uh, we should be thinking about? You know, how how would you know? Again, you know, if you were to have a, a blank sheet of paper today for the U.S. Uh, design, uh, what would you prefer to do there? Well, no, I, I think you really raise an excellent question, and uh, you know, certainly the the air infrastructure in the U.S. is primarily focused around major hubs. Uh, there's you know, figure about ten major hubs around the country. Um, and it is, uh, in essence, just the, the network structure itself lends itself to redundancy in the sense that if you take down one node, it's not, I mean, it's really not catastrophic. I mean, it's bad for that area. Even if you take down a large, you know, a hub like uh, Chicago O'Hare or Atlanta, uh, yeah. but the air network structure itself is still highly resilient. And in that case, it's very similar to the Internet. Um, where they're highly vulnerable, however, is if you have coordinated attack, right? So if you mm-hmm. coordinate and take down not just one major hub, but let's say four or five um, or six, then you could have a really serious problem and, and you start to fracture uh, the ability for the network uh, not to move um, within a region, but oftentimes between regions. So that's the kind of the core problem that you see in air transportation networks. And it's very similar to other networks, including the internet. Um, so I think if you're talking about how to design, um, you know, you know, greater resiliency, and I think you're spot on about this being a trade-off between, you know, kind of, uh, you know, operational efficiency and resiliency and security. 
Um, so the, the way that you would probably need to think about it is, okay, let's come up with the optimum, um, the optimum model for efficiency, but then yes. there might have to be uh, public sector investments uh, to ensure some amount of resiliency. Uh, you know, obviously it's not feasible for every airport in the United States to be connected to one another. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it might make sense for some secondary airports to have some capacity to, to move to other major hubs directly. Mm. Uh, and I think that might be a more optimal solution. So it's, it's more about public investment in infrastructure um, as maybe a way to resolve the resiliency problem. And this applies not just to cyber, but you could say the same thing for climate change and, and other challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. It's such, such an interesting problem. Uh, I haven't really thought about it, Charlie, but you know, there could also be coupled risk, right? So if you take about you know, the, the middle of the country, Chicago, Atlanta, Dallas, um, if you had a coordinated um, attack, um, we could potentially compute what the effects would be if it's Chicago plus Atlanta as opposed to Chicago plus Dallas, right? Because it's uh, different airlines and, and different um, different structural elements there. Um, and then, you know, what you're saying, I think, is it possible to have some sort of on-demand capacity to come online? in in case something happens well so i i mean to with regard to your first point absolutely and and we we do that analysis to look at not just single attacks on airports but we can actually quantify multiple you know kind of simultaneous events um so the the way to kind of handle that is on demand i i think there you have to start thinking about that and and plan for that contingency but the challenge for that, of course, is, it, you know, if you if you have on demand capability, well, then that's, you know, inventory that's not being used. Right. And it's not efficiently allocated. And so, you know, in, in you know, the airline industry, which is highly competitive, of course, and probably runs on fairly thin margins. Um, is this something that they would look to, you know, the U.S. government, you know, to, in essence, provide a subsidy to maintain? So, the, you know, they may be willing to say, well, for, you know, the, the broader, you know, public critical infrastructure, we're willing to do it, but we want a tax break. Uh, and I think that's where more creative public policy making needs to be done is to think in a more systems type approach to say, OK, where does it make sense for us to make, you know, critical investments so that in understanding why the private sector is doing what it's doing, you know, we don't want to paint them as the bad guy. They're, you know, they're, they're trying to make money. That's the goal of any business. Uh, yeah. but, but understanding that there's a public concern uh, around this, well, then we need to make investments. And that's what, frankly, govern good governance is all about. Uh, and is one of the things that I try to impart upon my students is, you know, it's, you know, we're, the, the goal here is not to, you know, make it private versus public. It's there's a public sector concern that stems from uh, entities, whether they're civilians uh, and, and citizens of the country, or you're actually talking about corporations uh, that have to work together. So understanding the system dynamics is absolutely critical for good governance. Right. right. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So if you look forward five years, Charlie, in conclusion, um, you know, the sense I get is, um, we have a lot of risks that we, we have to manage. 
there is some structural issues such as 85% of the critical infrastructure managed by private companies there is no real standardization of the equipment and the technologies that they're using so a lot of coordination risks there uh so if you look forward 5 years what what would you say you know to, you know sort of the top 3 policy priorities should be in this area oh well so first of all i think there there needs to be um a, a better way to identify risk and to measure it and and uh i i think before we start going down the path of you know any additional policy making or law making in this area i think it's helpful to just have an understanding and a central modeling capability that yes. allows our policymakers to make well-informed decisions right so i think that's you know kind of a i'm not sure if you call it number 1 but but i would say that i would put it way at the top of my list the second uh piece of this it it, it maybe um you know it, it might take some people by surprise i think we need to educate the next generation of policymaker right and policy <laughs> right. right on technology now the goal is not to make them electrical engineers or computer engineers uh or data scientists however they need to be fluent in the language they they need to broadly understand how the internet works how uh, advanced data analytics work uh the uh both the advantages of using them as well as some of the challenges uh right. that we run into and stemming from that you get all the questions of privacy of course and resiliency in in the case of significant disruption but this there's this education component in you know to a to a group in our country that you know frankly struggles and all of us have seen you know those uh testimonies on Capitol Hill where very very few of those lawmakers you know probably deeply understand what a lot of the technology leaders are uh trying to tell them and it's not that the technology leaders are you know evil and want to pull one over on on uh <laughs> the public sector I, i don't buy into that Yeah. Uh, what i do buy into is that it's complicated and um but that's not an excuse <laughs> that means that means right. we need to improve uh you know the uh the understanding of our lawmakers so that would be number 2 and then the third would be a, i i would say a tighter coupling between the private and the public sector so yeah. you know as we're moving forward to this much more integrated in complex society in the 21st century i it we we will be able to achieve so much in the in this next uh, century it is truly exciting uh however with that comes a set of risks and hmm. those risks need to be better understood not just by the public sector but also by the private sector and how they work together so that the private sector understands how they can make certain decisions that have large scale societal consequences and you know i just firmly believe that businesses um do have uh, uh in in addition to you know the profit motive also want to be good corporate citizens um yes. you know of course there are always the the one or two examples but in general when you talk to ceos and you talk to boards they they understand that they're part of a society right like they live in it their their kids you know live in that society so so they want it to be safe as well so i think finding better ways to integrate the private and public sector uh is um i i i think something that i would uh, i i would very much champion yeah that makes a lot of sense i think you know the the first uh, item that you said once you have some sort of quantification right uh you could actually think about some some kind of a reporting system around that 
but it has to be standardized so that people can people can understand what each company in the network is holding on to from a risk perspective and so you know just like we think about financial reporting you could have more of a standardized risk reporting in the future potentially that, that's right and, and there are ways to um to communicate the risk that they're posing in a way that does not give up any sort of corporate you know secrets and and something that they're more readily able to share that the challenge for them always of course is that you know the more you make that public mm. uh you know then it potentially affects things like insurance rates and other costs that they have to operate with and right. so so of course there's a natural inclination to kind of keep that you know bottled up so we we've got to change that incentive structure right we've got to make it where you know you want to share it uh and maybe by by the fact that you are sharing and you're taking proactive steps it demonstrates that in fact you are uh trying to be a good corporate citizen and moving in the right direction and maybe therefore you are um you know potentially given a discount or maybe this is where the private or the public sector is able to provide some cover uh but but again this is why it's so important for the public and the private sector to work together and why the public sector needs better training and education in this space so they understand those complexities and understand the challenges to the businesses in this environment uh because without it we I fear that we're going to go down this road of kind of willful ignorance uh <laughs> where we think everything is okay until something really bad happens and um right. you know I think it's just much better to be proactive yeah it's too late by then so so that's the key Uh so this has been great Charlie thanks so much for spending time with me and uh, good luck with uh all this work that you're doing in this area. Well thank you so much I've really enjoyed this uh conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.